Well, morning, Hope. My name is Chris Wormishirsch. I am one of the mission group leaders, and I also lead the men's group on Tuesday mornings, which, if you don't know, starts this Tuesday. So set your alarm now because it is bright and early, and you will probably be more awake than I am. But we look forward to seeing all the guys there. And this morning, instead of talking about how early 6 a.m. is, we're going to be talking about peace from Philippians 4. So if you want to go ahead and get started, like flipping over there, that's where we're going to be reading this morning. But before that, when I was thinking about Sean's sermon last week, I really loved that he introduced us into a little bit of his world. He gave us a little hint what it looks like to be a dad with three young guys. So I thought, hey, why don't I invite Hope into my world a little bit? So we're going to talk about books. I know, some of you are thinking, so talk about stars. No, books. We're talking about books today. So... One of the things, as I was thinking about this passage, was we're going to talk about the way that the Lord gives us peace, and then we just cultivate that peace. So it made me think about one of my big dreams. And one of my big dreams, this is like a way big ideal, probably something I'll never actually get to, is to be the guy who creates the next big like, pop culture thing, like the next big Lord of the Rings. So as I was thinking about it, you know, 75 years ago, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien comes out with The Hobbit, right? It's like this really good children's book, and he kind of has this idea something else is going to happen, and then piles on piles of notebooks turn into just a sprawling epic of a trilogy, another book that's like reading the dictionary but with fantasy names, and then at least 15 other books that he's written, right? So somehow in this one man's brain is all of this fantasy world Somehow he lives in the real world, and he can put pen to paper and publish all of this. Sounds pretty darn impossible for most of us, I'd say. But in 1973, his son Christopher Tolkien gets to inherit all of these notebooks, all of these books, and he gets to publish like five Lord of the Rings novels under his name. He probably doesn't really write much for it all, right? He's transferring like little scrawled index cards to books. But, if you look on Barnes & Noble, whose name is attached to these books? It's Christopher's, right? And you see this a lot, actually. You see, like, I'm starting the Wheel of Time series, so Robert Jordan writes the first 11 books, then Brandon Sanderson takes over the last three. All he's doing is taking notes and turning it into a book. And as I'm thinking about my dream of writing the next big, social, or big pop culture thing, I'm thinking, maybe I'd like to be the guy with the index cards. Maybe I don't want to write the next 15 book series, but maybe I just want to take someone's notes and go, yeah, I can, I can make a story out of this. It's already a story. I just want to be the guy who puts it into the laptop, maybe. So that's, that's kind of where we're going to be looking at today. Because I think, especially in 2022, one of the biggest things that we feel like we're lacking, whether or not we're Christians, is a sense of peace. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at what Paul says in Philippians about peace. And then we're going to see what does peace mean, how can we get it, and how can we cultivate it in our lives so that we live a life of peacefulness, we live a life without anxiety, and we live a life just in security in the Lord. So before we get into Philippians 4, Sean really helpfully gave us a big layout of what Philippi is like. But now that we're in Philippians 4, I want to do a quick overview of the whole letter. So we find out at the beginning of the letter that Paul's in prison again. And what he starts talking about is that even though he's in prison, he's found this really great way to take advantage of this opportunity to share the gospel with the prison guard. 
there's also other people outside of prison who are sharing the gospel. And he kind of says, well, they don't always have the best motives, but Christ is being proclaimed. And then he talks about, hey, this is my life. This is my inner, this is my inner struggle. I can't tell if I'd rather be with Jesus right now or continuing this mission. But what he finds in the struggle is still the joy of knowing Jesus. Despite being in prison, Paul's life is becoming characterized by joy and characterized by evangelism. And then he says, if you too feel some of this joy, if you feel peace together, if you feel love together, then have the mind of Jesus among you. And he launches into this beautiful hymn. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and we'll actually read it in a little bit. But he says that Jesus himself, who was in the very form of God, becomes a man, empties himself, and dies the death that we deserve, rising to new life to be the one before whom all will kneel. At the end of time, everyone's going to bow before Jesus. And then he says, here's three guys, actually, who embody this lifestyle. These are three examples that you can look at. He says, Timothy, Paphroditus, and himself. He says, these are three examples of men who emptied themselves. Paphroditus became sick almost to the point of death. Timothy works himself to the bone for them. Even Paul pursues all Jewish identity for the sake of knowing Jesus. And then in chapter 4, he talks to there's these two women who are fighting. And apparently this fight was so bad, so brutal, it's memorialized forever for the rest of eternity in the Bible. Like, just be thankful anytime you're having beef with someone, no one's writing the Bible anymore. <laughs> no one's going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember Chris. He's that guy who was fighting on Twitter in the Bible. No. So we're going to start in verse 4, because he just told these two women to try and find some way with the mind of Christ to reconcile. So we're going to start in verse 4, and we're going to read through the end of verse 9. He says, Rejoice to the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to come together and hear from your word about you, the God of peace, in your peace, which transcends all understanding. We pray, Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and open our ears to your word today, that we could hear from you, that you would speak to us, calm our anxious souls, calm our disquieted minds, and that through the gospel, through this time, we can see how lovely and glorious you are and just start to embrace the peace that you have for us. Praise the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we're talking about peace. And I really loved it two weeks ago when we were in John. His Jeff was like, well, Jesus gives us love, joy, and peace, but we don't have time to talk about peace. And I was like, oh, I do, two weeks from now. <laughs> so I love the way that these three have kind of worked together a little bit. It's kind of a fun little accidental series. So we're going we're gonna to be talking about peace, and we're going to be talking a little bit about both the peace that just comes from God and how to cultivate that peace. Because one thing I want to draw your minds to, especially if you're reading the ESV, 
it's broken, this passage is broken up into two mini paragraphs. And it's, it's got, they both start with commands. So the first one starts with rejoice, let your reasonableness be known, don't be anxious, pray. And then it says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus. Now the second paragraph says, think on these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So I love the way that Philippians operates. As I was going through it, I noticed that every time there's like a command, it's really closely followed up by a promise. Almost all of them have like command and then like comma promise, command period promise. Like every time that there's a command in Philippians, it's always followed up by a gospel promise. And I just love that. So the Bible is inviting us into this way of seeing God's commands as something good for us. So that when we obey, it's a way that we can kind of live in his love and his joy. So there are going to be a lot of practical applications this morning. There are going to be a lot of commands. But what I want us to see is not these commands as laborious, but instead I want us to see these commands as almost like invitations. Invitations into the abundant life that Jesus has for us, and invitations into the peace that he has for us. So if you're taking notes, my main, my main point this morning is that we experience the peace of God when we rejoice, pray, and think Christianly. So again, we experience the peace of God when we rejoice, pray, and think Christianly. And really, my aim this morning is that for some of us, we don't have any experience of the peace of God. Some of us might be coming in here with no idea about this peace that God offers us, and we're just a mess of anxiety and just fear. And, uh, and I think for some of us, even if we do know the peace that God has for us, we still are messes of anxiety. My middle name might as well be anxiety. Like, any time that I think about anxiety, I'm just like, well, if there's anxiety incarnate, that would probably be me. And so I know I even had to hear this sermon. I had to hear this passage. I needed to start practicing these things and, like, honestly, like, sounded like a customer testimonial. Even just in my life, I've already seen the way that these have shaped me and just helped me with my anxiety. So. My aim is just to share these with you, not as someone who read a text and said, this sounds good, but as someone who's actually learned to practice these things and can share them with you so that all of us together can experience this peace. And so one of the things that I want to do is, I've said this peace word a lot, and I know when you say a word a lot, it starts to lose its meaning, you know, like it doesn't sound like a word anymore. So before we go too much further, I just want to, just want to dial in on what does peace mean? So Paul, being in a, just being a, to his core a Jewish thinker, his mind is soaked in the Old Testament. He's got this thing memorized backwards and forwards, if you'd ever need to know it backwards. But when he thinks of the word peace, he's coming from the Jewish concept of shalom. And shalom, just kind of simply, is wholeness. It's a wholeness in our relationships with God. It's a wholeness in our relationships with each other. It's a wholeness in a relationship with the world. So peace isn't just like, You've probably heard it sometimes, I think it's like a Beatles song. Peace isn't just the absence of violence, but God's peace is actually this active kind of movement where we are together whole, our relationship with God is whole, our relationship with each other is whole, and our relationship with the world around us is whole. And we can live in harmony with all of these things without moving away from the brokenness of sin and just experiencing life as the way God intended it to be because of the gift he gave us in his son. So we don't just start with this piece, right? I think all of us start with like this base level of anxiety, and then you go through 
what's now approaching three years of the pandemic and your base level has jumped up here, or you were born and your base level just jumped up here like me. Um, so we need to first kind of ask, just in general, if you don't know God's peace, or if you're just kind of reminding yourself, where does this peace come from? We, we see this through the story of the Bible, right? God creates humanity to dwell with him, to be with him, to kind of rule his co-regents with him, to have dominion over all of creation. And very quickly, feels like even just a few days later, everything falls apart. A serpent comes in, the devil himself comes in, and he tempts the humans that God's created. And he says, don't you think you could rule better than the way God does? Don't you think you can choose right and wrong for yourself? And the humans God created say, yeah, I think you're right. Like, it's like a three-sentence conversation, and suddenly they've let go of what God said, and they're going forward with their own way of living. So because of this, death and sin enter the world. So what was supposed to be an eternity of living together with God, God dwelling with them, is now broken. And not only that, the humans that God created now have a rupture between their relationship with each other. They immediately begin fighting, and then their kids, well, one of their kids kills the other. And then they experience just a brokenness with their relationship with the world. So God, each other, the world, all of these things are broken. All of these relationships are ruptured. So what God does is he chooses Abraham. He chooses one man, one family, and says, through this family, I'm going to bring salvation to the world and fix all of these broken relationships. And eventually, the son of Abraham comes, who's Jesus himself. Jesus is God himself, comes to earth in the form of a human, taking the form of a slave so that he could die and he could let sin and evil and death do its worst on him. Everything that's all of like the devastation of sin and death just exhausts itself on Jesus himself when he dies on the cross. So through that death, right, he kills death and then he comes out of the grave three days later, resurrected to never die again. So evil has done everything it possibly could to Jesus. And Jesus still emerges victorious a few days later. And that now, when you give your allegiance to Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, we too can start to feel the freedom from this sin, and we can feel freedom from death, knowing that death doesn't have the final word over us anymore. Instead, when we die, we can look forward to resurrection in our bodies, being with Jesus forever, in eternity. Just, you think a million years? 10 million years, I can't think much higher because numbers aren't my strong suit, you'll be with Jesus for all that amount of time. And through this, we start to experience some of that peace. Because when Jesus dies, he, bring, he bridges the gap between us and God. So that broken relationship that we have with God, all that enmity that we have with him and all that hatred we have toward him can be fixed through Jesus. He's the perfect God-man who brings us into communion with God because God first came to us, reaching out to us, pursuing us and chasing after us through his son. And more than that, it actually gives us peace with each other, right? Because when you put your faith in Jesus, we're all, we're all linked into one family. We're all brought into the body of Jesus. So that anyone here who claims the name of Jesus is a family. And a family in a way that's deeper than blood, deeper than Ancestry.com. But instead, we're brought together in one body. So that that enmity we had towards each other and even stuff like racism and misogyny, those things are starting to get healed in the church when we're brought together in Jesus. And two, when we're Christians, that peace that Jesus gives us through his death and resurrection even applies to the way that we just interact with the world, right? Because I think a lot of our fear and anxiety comes from like this feeling of lack, 
these desires that we have, our idolatry. And instead what Jesus says is, when you don't worry about death anymore, when death doesn't have the final say, you don't have to exploit the earth anymore. You don't have to worry about a lack of resources. You don't have to worry about your situations because whatever happens, Jesus has us in the palm of his hands promising us resurrection in the future. So this peace that we have through Jesus is this free gift that we have through his death and resurrection. There's nothing that we can do. This is actually really good news for me. You cannot create the peace that's going to save your life because if it was up to me, I would not even be close. Like peace would be over here and I'd be somewhere over there. But instead, Jesus offers us peace as a baseline gift, one that we can have when we just say, Jesus is Lord, when we accept that he's the king of the entire universe and he's the king who loves us and offers us this peace as a gift. So I know for, for some of us, we could just sit and say, wow, that's awesome. I don't, that's enough for me to hear this morning. But I think for some of us too, we're like, okay, I think I know that message. I'm learning to live under that message. So we also want to take a few minutes and just think, how can we cultivate it? Because for a lot of us, there's a lot of reasons we have some personal anxiety, right? We heard a lot about economic insecurity over the past couple of years. We watched the unemployment rate kind of like skyrocket, job creation die. I mean, for so many of us, when we were locked in our houses for a few months, and then even just when we couldn't see people, so many of our social structures were broken down. So many of us, so many of us lost jobs. Even I lost some family members. Like all of these things are bubbling up to give us kind of personal anxiety. Or when you watch the news, there's so much reason for social anxiety, right? You think about all of the unrest over the past year. You think about now with job strikes. So many reasons that I think we watch, we're watching what it feels like society just crumble around us. And I don't know about you, but that can be kind of scary sometimes. You turn on the news for even like five minutes, and you're just like, well, that's enough. I'm hyperventilating. <laughs> or if you're one of the people who reads the newspaper, you read about three articles. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's just such a terrible, it's causes such a terrible unrest in our hearts. And there's also just like theological anxiety. I think a lot of us just like, when we kind of stray, we kind of feel like, well, I don't know if God could truly love us, me, I've done stuff, I can't, you know, we all have these reasons that we think that God can't love us. And these are the reasons that I think we need to cultivate this peace. This peace that's already been given to us, we cultivate our experience of it. And I love it because when you look at those two promises that I called out in verses seven and in verse nine, so it's the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 9 says, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So before we get into the applications, before we get into all these commands, these are a couple things, a couple more things that we can just hold on to, right? That when we when we cultivate the experience of the peace of God, it will guard our hearts and our minds in Jesus. This is why we're doing it. Because God has promised that his peace will guard us. It will guard our minds, it will guard our hearts. And we do it because he's promised to be with us. We're not doing this just to spin our wheels, but we're doing this to experience the fullness of what God has promised to us. And I love this because when it says he'll guard our hearts and our minds, I think we have this, you know, it's so easy just to get like so overwhelmed when you're watching the news, but this peace promises to guard our minds. Like when we're building up these practices, we don't get, I don't think, I've noticed in myself at least, we're not getting, I'm not getting as overwhelmed watching these anymore. 
And I think that's the peace of God actively guarding minds. And when it says he'll guard our hearts, I think when we get anxious, it's really, really, really easy to turn to our idols, right? When we're anxious, it's easy to turn to the idols of power, sex, money. It's easy to turn to our idols of TV or Netflix or porn. All of these idols that threaten to overtake our hearts because we trust them over God. We have this promise that when we actually live in God's peace, we can be freed from these idols. We can be freed from these false ways of living. So I think I've talked about these practices enough. And you're like, well, what are they? So let's, let's get into them a little bit. So remember I said that we're going to look at rejoicing, prayer, and then thinking Christianly. You know, like, what a funny way to say that. But it'll make sense when we get there. So the first practice of peace is just we cultivate peace when we rejoice. So if you remember what I said a few minutes ago, Paul is in prison. And this isn't like one of those cushy Norwegian prisons you might have seen where they get like 24-hour room service, TVs, it's like a nice little room. These are like, these are more like those dirty dungeons that like you get that one drip that just where's the water source but it won't stop dripping. Smells musty. Like imperial prisoners don't, like they wouldn't get fed if people forgot about them. They don't have someone whose like job it is to make sure everyone's getting fed. So if you're a prisoner who doesn't have friends, or if you're a prisoner who just, whoops, we forgot, you're just not going to get food. But it's in this context still that Paul can say, rejoice. And really, he says it twice. So if you remember from school, if you're still in school, like when the teacher wrote something on the board or said it twice, probably pay attention. Like Paul says it not, not even that long. He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he says first half of the sentence, second half of the sentence, it's bracketed by rejoicing. And that's the way our lives are to look. It's bracketed by rejoicing that in everything we can cultivate just this attitude of rejoicing and joy. So for some, rejoicing sounds like this really good like Bible word. And you're like, well, that sounds like a nice word. I don't know what it means. So really I want to kind of nail in right at the core is just joy. 16 times, at least according to my account in Philippians, Paul talks about joy, either in the context of feeling joy or rejoicing. So in the context of this prison epistle, Paul writing from prison, this damp, musty dungeon, he says, rejoice, feel joy in Christ. And really what this is, is this is kind of the bubbling up of joy in our lives that just culminate in praise, right? This little mini-series we're doing is the prayers and praise of Paul. So this is Paul's praise that in any context, in any situation, we can still rejoice in the Lord. And I think... Especially now, you know, we're going into year three of the pandemic. We all know what happened over Christmas with Omicron, where, like, Tuesday, it was one case in the United States. Wednesday, it was, like, 100,000. We, like, there's so many reasons that we've had to feel anxious lately, and it feels really hard to rejoice in that, right? Like, in what world could we find something to rejoice about in COVID? In what world could we find something to rejoice about in unemployment or in the midst of death on our deathbeds? And that's where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't say, other places in the New Testament do say, rejoice in your struggles. But right now, we want to hone in on what he says here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because whatever our context is, whatever is going on around us, and there's been plenty going on around us, we always have a faithful God who loves us. We always have a faithful God who's going to be with us 
who promises to be with us through his spirit, a God who promises to bless us and to love us and just care for us. And it doesn't matter whether you're in prison, it doesn't matter if you're having a good day, a bad day, you lost your job, you're getting divorced. Jesus is always a constant in your life, always faithfully being with you and loving for you and caring for you. And you can experience that through faith in him. So when he says rejoice in the Lord always, what we want to just remember is that we always have such a fantastic reason to praise. We always have this reason to feel this joy. And I know for some of us, it's a struggle to remember that. For some of us, we can't always have these reasons. So I pulled a few references just from Philippians. So we're not going to be chasing around the entire Bible right now to find out these reasons that we can praise. And I'm so thankful that Jeff read this and Sean read the same verse last week as well. But it's such a, such a good verse. So Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So when we're looking for reasons to rejoice, we can just rejoice that God has promised that the work he started in us, he's not going to give up. So if you're feeling discouraged in your situation, if you're feeling discouraged in your growth, we can just lean on this promise that God who has started to work in us will bring it to completion at the day of his son. That no matter what seems to be going on, God, like I love the way Sean said this, God is more devoted to our growth than we are, right? Like if we ever kind of feel like, oh, I screwed up again, or oh, I did this again, God says, I know, and I'm going to bring you into Christ's likeness through my spirit. But also... I really think this is a great verse because it's not just talking about individuals, it's talking about the church. So even us as Hope Fellowship, we have this promise that the work that God begins in hope is going to bring to completion. And we don't know what that hope we don't know what that work looks like. We can't possibly know the extent of that. But God has promised to bring it to completion. And even our mission groups, like I love my mission group, but it's such an encouragement to know that God is bringing the work of that or that mission group to completion. Whatever reason our mission group is together, God is devoted. He's ruggedly devoted to bringing that to completion. So anytime, that's one good reason to rejoice. But another one, this one I mentioned earlier. So this is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And this one has so many things that I love to wink at the mission group leaders. Like if you're looking for something to talk about, here's one for you. Wink, wink. Uh, so 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So I'm not going to I can't possibly touch everything in this passage. There's been so many books just about these couple of verses that it's probably its own section in the Dewey Decimal System at this rate. But just think about like when you're struggling to find reasons to rejoice. You can rejoice in the fact that Jesus came and was humbled to the point of death on a cross on our behalf. You can rejoice that Jesus shows us a new way of living, a way of humility and not a way of exploitation and violence, but a way of humble love for each other, a way of putting others before ourselves. 
Or if you need a reason to rejoice, you're going to rejoice that Jesus has the name above every other name. That whatever struggles you're facing, any interpersonal relationships, any social relationships, all those are going to crumble before the kingship of Jesus. That because Jesus is king, he has full authority over everything going on, and everything will be made accountable to him one day. So whether or not you're mad at the government, whether or not you're mad at work, your brother, your spouse, whoever it is, know that Jesus is coming to make things right because he has the authority to make things right because of his death and his resurrection. And then there's one more. There's so many in the book, but I had to, I had to tone it down a little bit. I mean, I'd almost be reading the whole book, so you're like, oh, please don't do that. <laughs> so the last one we're going to look at is at the end of verse 5. So this is like the very end. It just says, the Lord is at hand. So when you need a reason to rejoice, just remember, the Lord is at hand. And when I was studying this passage, one of the questions that kind of comes up is like, what does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus' return is soon? Does this mean that like, God is close to us? And with most of the New Testament, the answer is yes. The answer is both, probably. Because what we have to rejoice is that we have this knowledge that Jesus is coming soon. That Jesus is returning bodily to set things right. There's this quote I love in the Matrix movie where Morpheus says, it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. We're not hoping Maybe Jesus will come to make things right, but instead we're hoping, knowing that Jesus is coming to make things right. And we're not, we're also going to rejoice because God's not far from us. He actually dwells in us by his spirit. I love this way that John 14 through 16 talks about it. We dwell in the Father, and the Father dwells in us through his spirit dwelling in us. So whenever you need some reason to rejoice, we can just remember the coming of Jesus is soon. And he's already present with us, and he's already near to us. He's already with us. And we can sit and we can rest in that peace, knowing that we're not doing anything. We're not striving to find God. We're not striving to find someone who's hiding from us. But instead, we're striving to follow and obey and love the one who's come to us, who's pursued us in his son, and who's found us where we are. So this next one. We can we cultivate peace when we pray. So look again at verses at verse six. Paul says, "Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God." So I don't. If you've read the Bible before, you know that it makes some pretty audacious claims, right? It says that this. Jewish man from 2,000 years ago is actually king of everything that you see. It says that because of one man's actions 6,000 years ago, everybody's going to sin and die. It says people come back to life, axe heads float on water, bears can be summoned. Like, all of these crazy things are in the Bible. But to me, this might be one of the most audacious things. It's, Don't be anxious? Seriously? Like, yeah, I'd love to just not anxious anymore. But Paul doesn't just say this because... You know, he's not just like saying this out of some holy, like holy hill where he's like, oh, I got this. You can all figure this out. But what he invites us into when he says, don't be anxious, is he invites us into a way to combat the anxiety that so easily entangles our hearts. And he doesn't just say, don't be anxious. Okay, anyway, grace and peace, bye. He says, don't be anxious. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And I think Sean did this amazing job of bringing us into what prayer looks like last week. And I, I really recommend, if you haven't heard the sermon, go back and listen. It's on YouTube. And kind of listen to the ways that he explained prayer. But I just want to say, like, Paul brackets this book with prayer, right? His own and then our call to prayer. So it's really important that we learn that when we're getting anxious, we don't have to just sit and stew in it. Like, when I'm, like, I can think of like 17 examples right this second of ways that I felt anxious recently. Like you're going on a trip, anxiety. Did I bring enough pairs of pants? Did I bring enough shirts? Did I pack whatever? Or you can just think about like anytime you read, anytime your throat tingles, right? I'm sure you've all felt this. Oh, it's the Rona. I've been hit. But what Paul is saying is like in all of these things, God is inviting us into conversation with him. That through prayer, our hearts can be oriented back to God. That through prayer, we can bring these requests to him. And he says in everything, right? Like how many of us are so concerned that we're bothering God when we pray? Or how many of us are so concerned that we're burdens, we don't even bother to pray? We don't even bother to talk to our friends about it because we're so afraid of being a burden. But the invitation that we have through Jesus is to boldly come before his throne and ask for these things, prayer and supplication. And for some of us, prayer comes naturally. Some of us, like really chatty people with other people, we can be pretty chatty with God. And there's some of us who just, we might struggle with prayer. So if you're really looking for like a way to learn how to pray, there's this big prayer book right in the middle of your Bible. Like if you open your Bible right in the middle, you'll probably find it. There's 150 psalms that we can pray. All of these different prayers written by God to God that help us learn how to orient our hearts towards prayer. And there's so many, right? Like thinking of Psalm 8, where we can just say, like, why are you mindful of us? Who is man that you're mindful of him? There's confessions in Psalm 51 where we ask for God's cleansing. There's even a lot of psalms that when we're angry, anxious, you know when you're so anxious, it kind of makes you mad. There's a lot of psalms that even invite us to direct our anger and give that to God. Like Psalm 137, after Israel goes into exile, where they're invited to bring that anger to God and say, God, what are you going to do about this? And I just think, like, there's, it's like literally, any, I know everybody, like, all these Bible reading plans have us, like, reading the Psalms for the most part, but the invitation I want to offer is just, use these as basis for prayer. Don't just read them. Don't just think of them as, like, pretty poetry, but instead, like, use these as launch ports of prayer. Sometimes that just means reading it, and sometimes it means using it as the way that we can direct our thoughts, direct our emotions. Because for me, like, I have a real hard time saying my emotions. Like, I usually, like, use, like, emojis. Like, sad, angry emoji. Um, but the Psalms really kind of actually taught me a lot of ways to really just emote better. And not just emote better, but bring those emotions to God himself, like, directly, in a way that he's inspired. And it's the same with supplication. There's a lot of Psalms that help us with supplication, but... I think one of the key differences between prayer and supplication is the sense of, like, need, the sense of urgency. Like, this is something I could really use right now. Like, when you're, when you're unemployed and your mortgage is coming up, your student loans are coming up, that's the time where the real supplicationary, urgent prayers come up, right? Those are the times where you really feel, ah, I really need some money, like, now, please. Like, these are the prayers that we're invited to give to God in everything, right? whether it's a sense of just nice prayer in the morning or it's a sense of urgent 
supplicationary prayer, we are allowed to bring those to God. And Paul says, this is one of the ways that we fight anxiety. Because even just for me, when I'm anxious, one of the easiest things to do is just talk about it. Because I think sometimes when you're anxious, it's just like that hold that it has on you can just be broken. And you kind of say it out loud, and you're like, well, it sounds silly when I say it out loud, right? But even if it doesn't, even if they're serious concerns, what we can do is bring it to the one who loves us and the one who invites us to share it with him. Because again, I just the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Some of the prayers that we're bringing, God answers with his presence. It may not look the way that we want it to look. It may not feel the way answer that we want. But God answers with his presence, his calming, soothing presence that's with us, that brings us his love and his peace. But also, the Lord is at hand. These prayers are to the one who's coming to set things right. It's the ones that say, like, I'm having a terrible time at work, but I know, Jesus, you're coming to fix that. One of these days you're going to be here, and all of this is going to be washed away in your presence. So, so far, we've looked at the ways that we can experience peace with rejoicing, and we can look at the way we can experience peace through prayer. So finally, the last one that I said is, we can experience peace by thinking Christianly. <laughs> so this is a little bit of a longer list. So this is verse 8. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So I'm not going to go through this list entirely, all these eight different things. That's, again, wink, wink, something for mission groups if you wanted to talk about these things. But what I, the sense that I get from this is that Paul's inviting us to be just formed by the language of the Bible, formed by the language of Christianity. So I think if you ever, like, watch a commercial, and I mean, like, you're like, wow, why would I do that? <laughs> like, I, I, I grew up falling asleep to infomercials, so I know, like, the magic bullet infomercial, like, by heart now. But, like, commercials are designed to form us into people who want things. And one of my favorite, one of my favorite assignments at seminary was we went to Yorktown Mall. And I know for people who were alive during the 80s, you're like, yeah, I love the mall. And people my age were like, a bunch of empty stores, what'd you do there? But when you go to the mall, like, Think about the ways that storms, stores are trying to form you. They're trying to form you into people who want more. They're trying to form you into people who spend money there that you can't be the person that society needs you to be unless you own X, Y, or Z. If you don't own the new Xbox, if you don't own Gucci purse or whatever Gucci makes, like those are the things that we need to be a full person. And what commercials do is like we form us and they subtly change our minds to think that's true, right? But what Paul's inviting us into is instead having, those, having the Bible form who we are, having Jesus form who we are. So when he says, think about things that are just, pure, and lovely, there's a lot of things in the world that threaten to take our attention that aren't just, that aren't pure, that aren't lovely. Really, in reality, these things aren't the things put before us, are they? If you watch TV, the just, pure, and lovely things aren't the things that they're usually going to put in front of us. If you're scrolling through Facebook, you're not going to get a targeted ad for the nicest new, like, the nun who saved, like, 100 lives from an orphanage. You're going to get, like, again, that bag that you really need, that shirt that you really need. So we actually kind of, there's an active way that we work with the Spirit to be formed in the language of Christianity. And I think once we do that, when you start to see the world through the lens of the Bible, when you start to see the world through the lens of the Gospel, that's one of the ways that we combat the anxiety and learn to live in 
Because when we learn to read the world through the lens of the gospel, that Jesus is king and is coming to set things right, that's what that's how we kind of combat this anxiety. When COVID seems to rule like our thought patterns, rule the headlines, we know that Jesus being king is the actual headline. That COVID doesn't have the final word. We're gonna look back at this in our eighties and say, well, man, that was a rough three years, but Jesus is still king. Right? We're going to look back at all of those shirts and all the clothes and all the things that we bought and think, oh, that was nice for a few years, but Jesus is still king. So we're invited here to, I mean, some of these, some of these things to be thinking about are really easy. You'd be thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about the Bible. Even, I love this way that Psalm 19 talks about uh, thinking about nature. So I'm going to read just the first six verses from Psalm 19. I don't remember if it's up there, so we'll just have to listen. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voices go out throughout all the earth, and their words, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then the psalm changes to talk about how the law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. So what the psalmist is kind of saying is like, even nature is some of these are some of these lovely things that we can think about. When you learn the language of the Bible, you look at snow and don't see like wet, nasty, cold stuff, but instead you can see a picture of the way that Jesus makes us white as snow from his forgiveness. When we think about, um, when, even when you look at a rock, you can remember the way that Deuteronomy calls God the rock, the one that's solid and trustworthy and dependable. We can learn to see nature as pictures of the gospel because God created nature to be a picture of him, to reveal himself in nature. And I think one of the things that was hard for me to learn is Changing the way we think does require sacrifices. If you're spending all day looking at memes or the news and five minutes in the Bible, you're not really going to accidentally fall into thinking these thought patterns. Like, one of the things that I had to do was really take stock of how much time I was reading the Bible, how much time I was praying, and how much time I was doom scrolling on Twitter. And I realized, man, I don't, this, this isn't to be a con condemnation, but it's just to be somewhat revelatory to say, the way that we spend our time is going to affect the way that we think. And I think a lot of us have to say, we might not be spending a lot of time being formed by the Bible. We might not spend a lot of time being formed by what God has to say. So this is kind of a, this was a challenge for me. I hope it's a challenge to all of us to think, how much time are we really devoting to seeing our minds changed? How much are we asking for God to change our minds? And how much are we just kind of letting the world dominate our thought patterns? And then really saying, Maybe that's why I'm anxious. Maybe that's why I can't experience the peace of God, because I'm not really actively seeking these things out. God has laid out a buffet, and we're sitting here poking at our microwave dinners, right? Like, we are invited in something so much better and so much deeper, and we just kind of have to, by the power of the Spirit, have the gumption to take it. So, I love the way that Paul kind of starts to end it, as I do. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Be amazing to be the type of person who can say, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, right? Like he can offer himself up as an example to say, 
These things that I practice, I commend to you, to say, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So I'm not going to even pretend that I'm on the same level as Paul here, but I will say, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in this passage, when you practice these things, you'll be able to experience the God of peace. When you rejoice, when you pray, when you learn to think more Christianly, the peace of God will guard and protect you. And I just hope this is an invitation to reject the anxiety, reject the nervousness and just the disquiet that's taken all of our hearts, and said, see it's an invitation into the peace that God gives us, into an experience of his presence that he'll guard our hearts and our minds. So let's pray. God of peace, we're just so thankful for the way that in your son we can have peace. Peace with you, peace with each other, peace with the world. And just we pray, Spirit, that you'd help us grow in our understanding and our experience of this peace. That through these practices, we can see the way that you love us and experience your peace and that anxiety in our lives. Pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen.